Welcome to Small Business Big Impact. These are lessons from the trenches of running a business with a multiple bottom line. Purpose, people, planet, and profit. Get the inside scoop on what it takes to succeed at using business as a force for good. As the founder and CEO of Leverage Lab, Sarah Blankhorn dedicates her time and energy to the intersection of business and sustainability. She helps companies achieve B Corp certification, honing their ethical business practices and baking them into the DNA of their companies. With 20 years of experience in the field, Sarah helps businesses capitalize on declaring, measuring, and monitoring their impact. Her passion for engaging people has gifted her with a vast network and an uncanny ability to lead productive workshops, finding ways of working across silos, and building collaborations that are in service to a wider agenda. Over the last five years, Sarah has had the pleasure of working with the City of Vancouver, the Government of Alberta, Lululemon, H&M, UBC, and over a dozen others. In this episode, Sarah shares how she and others worked hard to establish a project, only to have its growth cut short due to factors outside their control. Listen in to discover the powerful lessons she gained on her way to finding fertile ground. Not so long ago, things sort of shifted with a major project that you had been working on. And that shift has brought up some significant learnings and experience, right? I'm wondering if you could take me back to where you feel is like the origin of that story. Yeah. Thanks, Jalen. Um, let me tell you a little story about how it all started. I, When I was 16, my parents moved to a little town outside of Guadalajara called Ajijic. And um, we moved from rural Nova Scotia to Ajijic. And when we arrived, you know, I was awestruck by the poverty and also by the state of the lake that was there. The lake was completely dried up. We were looking at like cracked sand in places that used to be a thriving lake. And I remember being really troubled by both the poverty that I was seeing and that the lake had completely dried up, that we, you know, that we let that happen. And so I started volunteering for a local organization that brought in an international organization called the International um, Lakes Society. And they brought together all, all of the um, participants in the demise of the lake and all the participants who would potentially be affected by, by the lake's revival. And they and looked at the lake as a system. And when they brought all of those folks together, they were able to see that all of them were extracting little bits and none of them understood. It's sort of like the tragedy of the commons. None, none of them understood that all of that amounted to the entirety of the lake. And so they started planning together and collaborating and looking at the lake as a system. And they worked with the farmers up the Lerma River, which was the tertiary river, point and um, change their crops from flood irrigation to drip irrigation. They worked with the water treatment tertiary plant that was extracting water for the nearby city of Guadalajara and upgraded their systems and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, really in the end, they were able to see the lake as a system, lower all of the different impacts, um, and the lake slowly came back to life. And I would say that that story is really important to tell because it was pivotal in my in my career and in my in me really helping me understand what my passions were and where I wanted to work. And I went on from there and, and did an undergrad in international development, traveled the world doing so, um, many programs abroad in that degree. And then I did a master's degree of science and sustainability, 
So with a really well-rounded understanding of what I like to say is what's screwed up in the world, I really was left with no choice but to try and create a solution and and also to create a, a solution that you know, had go-to-market abilities because at the same time, you know, I needed to sustain myself and uh, my own needs. That classic, you got to fill your own cup first, right? Sure. Fast forward, lots of details in between, but I, I landed in Vancouver and started trying to figure out what, you know, what are the wicked problems in Vancouver? Where, this is Vancouver, British Columbia, you know, where are the the challenges and the wicked problems? After some, some research, I uh, was met with some strong interest from the the fashion industry here in BC, Canada, and uh, quickly learned that 22,000 tons of apparel waste heads to landfill every year. And that, from a waste perspective, is problematic. But when you get into the problem, you start to understand that, you know, a lot of that stuff that's not being sold in secondhand markets is being shipped overseas. And that's a big carbon contribution a lot of the stuff that then lands um, in these developing countries eventually lands because it's not really fit to be worn. Nobody's really vetting that per se, ends up in their landfills. And that becomes our problem because a lot of these developing countries don't have the waste incinerators or the waste programs that we have here in place in, in North America. And so a lot of it's being burned. And a lot of, if you look at the composition of a lot of the textile and fashion waste is it's it's petroleum products so we're you know we're creating ozone layer depletion and contributing to climate change in a big way um you know and then you look upstream in the fashion industry and there's so many challenges with with dyes and chemicals and water pollution and and then also the human element of how folks are being treated we've been aware of some of them as as the as they become aware uh, apparent in the news but um all that to say, you know, we we wrote a collaborative white paper on the problem and brought industries together to do that, to really look at the, the fashion industry and the waste within fashion as a, as a problem, similar to my inception story. And we're really able to understand the complexities of the challenge. And from there, we came up with six leverage points for change. And we were awarded some incredible fund funding from the Van Vancouver Foundation and, and Van City and Kendor Textiles to really take our organization to the next level and start doing things about the challenge that we had we had discovered together. And you know, the whole world, this is this is two, two and a half years ago and the whole world changed. And I, I think back to your original question, I think the piece about fertile ground is really like things are always changing and you really have to look at you know, what are the variables that you're faced with now? And it might be different tomorrow, um, as we've all really became become hyper aware of uh, with the pandemic. Things can turn dramatically quicker than we realize. Yeah, it's true. So we learned we learned a few things. You know, we definitely spent uh, some time listening. And I think that the key to great innovation is really, you know, knowing your wicked problem but also like keeping your ear to the ground and constantly being able to understand the variables necessary for quote unquote fertile ground, you know? You got this grant to do this work and then, but more recently you've had to basically shutter the project. And that's a piece around the, the fertile ground that has really hit home for you, right? And that's probably the context in which like some of these really difficult lessons have come from, is that right? Yeah. 
I think that things are, are constantly shifting and we, we need, we as an organization um, decided to close, close our doors um, and go into what we're calling hibernation mode just because we have so many assets, you know, we might want to reuse them or recycle them or repurpose them. Um, But the organization as it has been, we definitely have decided to close the doors just because when we looked at where we were at after several pivots, I think we were, we were, we had to, we were forced to make a decision. What was it about the nature of the ground that wasn't, that made it not favorable for flourishing? Yeah, I mean, th- these are the things that we've, that we've learned that I wanted to share. But, um, you know, in, in the business in which we're in, where a lot of a lot of the work that we had to do, we had to teach people about the problem before we could sell them the solution. And that that is that, you know, takes really deep marketing pockets because you're, you know, you've got to really educate before you then say, OK, have them realize that the challenge is so, so big. And that they, you know, they're they're needing to do something about it. And yeah, I think the non the nonprofit funding model in that vein also requires full time fundraising folks. And we are we were a team of doers and innovators and systems change uh, professionals and project managers and consultants with a lot of subject matter expertise, but not necessarily nonprofit fundraisers. I think projects like this at this at that level really require full-time fundraisers. You know, without without any like top-down policy directive, such as like EPR provincial or um, any sort of EPR in place, there's no risk looming for for folks where they feel the urgency. And you look you go look across the pond and places like Europe, they've got smaller land masses and very progressive policies. And so you're going to see a lot of a lot of fashion brands in that area of the world being progressive because they have to, and they're feeling the pinch of that that pressure. Whereas here here in Canada, you know, there's a big landmass when you throw things away, and I'm using air quotes. You know, it really feels like there's an away. Whereas in Europe, it's like you know next to your window. <laughs> so I think that without that top down directive, it's really hard to shift the needle. And more specifically, to get the retailers to make any changes, even if they care about climate change or they have, you know, sustainability policies in place. And then I think the last one is really around readiness. We are hearing, we were hearing a lot of talk about how companies were ready, but when it came to like signing up for these initiatives, there was a say-do gap. And not always, you know, like there are, there are many brands that did sign on to our programs and our, um, our education program. But largely, in, in order to be super successful with what we were doing, we really needed that say-do gap to be tighter uh, or less of a say-do gap. So I think, um, I think those, are, those are some of the things that we learned about Fertile Ground and specifically mm. as a nonprofit, what, what really needs to be in place. And I think also, like, I think when we started out at this, the ground may have been a bit more fertile. I mean, everyone says we were before our time, but then everything changed with the pandemic and a lot of the funding that was available is now now being diverted to more COVID related or um, diversity, equity, inclusion related, which, you know, all important causes. And, you know, I think that the, the pool of money that we were, we were working with dried up. So there are a number of things that sort of went into the project, not sort of not 
taking off in the way that you you had hoped or that with the direction that you were originally planning. Like if you were to start something similar next year, if the, of, the, of those factors that seem to be getting in the way, are there any of them that you feel like there's something you could do about? Um, yeah, but not enough to sustain an organization. Right. I, I you know, I would, I really love what um, Fabio's done over at Mattress Recycling, you know, like he, he found a window with mattresses and lobbied and got that legislation in place, banning land, banning mattresses from landfill. And then overnight he had a business model and he was able to say, okay, if you put this law in place, we have a plan for what to do with the materials. And that's exactly what we're trying to do at the textile lab for circularity in our, um, in our roadmap, we brought stakeholders together to do a roadmap to textile recycling. So the idea there was that we were going to show policymakers that, Hey, we've got a plan. We figured out, you know, what it's going to cost to do recycling here in Western Canada if you do put EPR in place. And that's, you know, that's part of our programming. We still have folks signed up for that who are, are, are working with that. My colleague, Emily McGill is facilitating and running it. And, you know, it's still just not enough. I think it goes back to that point where you, when you have to educate people or lobby for, for policy that takes, you know, it's a really long, I want to say sales cycle to get it in place and it's not a it's not a priority plastics a priority on in the in the waste diversion the waste waste ban policy framework so you just don't know you don't you don't really know whether you have influence even let alone control so do you think what was was successful with the mattress recycling was it it was more far more specific or like an easily identifiable or uh yeah i bet that that had something to do with it I bet also, you know, Fabio's ability to have, you know, in place what he could do with each of the pieces, you know, his reputation, his know-how. I don't really, I don't really know exactly, but I know he he did a full court press on on that and was, and I don't think it happened over, overnight. You know, I do think it was a, a, a push, but, you know, when it did go in, he did have a business in place overnight because now he had to figure out what to do with the mattresses, right? Right. I think he had a solid plan. What kinds of things might you consider doing? Because I mean, I don't, I don't see you pulling up stakes and heading in a totally different direction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that these these points and these learnings have really, and, and like seeking fertile ground have really helped me to, to look around and, to, you know, look for the right signs of readiness and, you know, whether there's a say-do gap and, you know, uh, if there's speed and momentum and yeah it's been exciting because i've been i've been building i i call myself a, a b corp um certification concierge meaning i don't work for for b lab and b corp is a certification for businesses saying that they are sustainable and it's under the umbrella of both social and environmental sustainability i help companies attain that certification but what's different about this venture is that you know the readiness is there the say do gap there isn't really one. All of the progressive companies I know are getting B Corp certified. You know, there's this this industry, there's the certifications dubbed to like triple. And, you know, there's currently there's 6,400 certified B Corps globally, hmm. you know, 2,000 uh, plus in US and Canada, spanning 159 industries in 87 countries with one unifying goal, you know. So, like, 
I think the, the work and the awareness is being done by another organization called B-Lab and they're doing the education, right? And I just need to do what I'm good at, which is helping companies to measure where they're at, their baseline, relative carbon, waste, water, best practices, policies, and procedures around transparency, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you name it. And so that's the work that I get to come in and help businesses do to get the 80 points that they need to pass and walk them through the verification process that that B-Lab does to, to certify folks. So, you know, I really looked at these learnings and in my, in my pivots, looked at how do I, um, how do I take what I've learned and um, apply that to my life, apply that to my next venture, but still have impact, still feel like I am living my purpose, which is to help, help at the intersection of, of business and sustainability and, and inevitably see ourselves revolutionizing capitalism, you know, changing the game of changing the face in the game of capitalism, right. which is what B Corps are, are doing globally. Yeah. I often talk about it as the organic certification for business. Yeah. <laughs> People get that. I'm wondering, like, I, I got this, I have a suspicion that maybe this work doing uh, with B Corp certification might have uh, the momentum of it might actually wind up circling back to your original, this original focus. Do you have, do you imagine that might be possible? I mean, I really hope so. I think, um, you know, the, the beautiful thing is, is like, it's just a, a different way to slice some of my skills. I'm still running workshops. I'm still helping people collaborate around sustainability goals. Um, it's just happening inside of companies and corporations rather than spanning um, across different companies. So it's the same work. I'm still sharpening my tools, which is exciting for me because those are my sweet spots. That's, that's where I shine. That's, that's where I get excited. Mm-hmm. And I hope so. I mean, I think that those those lessons learned will I'll keep them in my back pocket, and you know, I'll always be looking for ways to to see greater impact and to see systems change. It's just uh, as part of my DNA from from that that story I told you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. back in Mexico all those years. Has your heart mended yet? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, despair. Despair is not. Uh, I mean, we all sit with despair, I think, to some degree. But I, you know, when you're when I'm there, I, I realize like it's just it's not helpful. It doesn't um, doesn't inspire me. It doesn't inspire others. And um, I think with anything, it's like the the cards you get dealt. You get a choice on how you want to play them, right? That's what's in my control. And I just I just don't don't choose to 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 do despair. It's it's boring. It's apathetic. And so I choose to, I choose inspiration. I choose innovation. I choose, you know, and I think, I think the ticket is to not hold on, not hold on to anything too tightly because it can all change in a minute. So are there things that you did or have happened in your life that have helped you learn how to do that? Because that sounds easy enough, but there's a big gap between the words and the doing, right? Mm. In terms of what it takes to make it happen. Another say do gap, huh? (laughs) Of a different, slightly different sort, right? Of a different sort, indeed. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've had, uh, I've had my fair share of grief. Yeah, I lost my mother about a year and a half ago to cancer. Mm, Sorry. And thank you. And um, yeah, I, I find that those experiences are really humbling. They really teach you how, 
how to let go of something in its specific form, but how to hold on to it in another form or another way. And there's some beautiful lessons in grief if you really look. Um, and they teach us how to how to be present with the now and decide how, you know, what really matters and how you really want to show up for that in in your fullest. And I, I think it's it's been it's been a guide, a guide for me. Like, you know, tragic as it is, it's there's there's, there's a a juxtaposition with it that, you know, on the other side is just, just this gratitude for the moment and gratitude for right now and and the power of choice of how how you wanna how you wanna work with that, how you wanna be with that. And were there any books or teachers that sort of that you that helped you with um, that figuring that out? <laughs> many, many. And you know, I think what's accessible to all of us is just going in and listening to that inner voice just taking the time to to sit with it and be with grief and listen to what it's saying i will i will add that um water water has taught me so much you know sitting by sitting by rivers and just watching how it just flows by you know and the symbolism and even just sitting in sitting in a river and feeling it flow around you and how, you know, like 90% of our body is water, right? And just how easy it is for water to flow. And also sitting, sitting by the ocean and watching, you know, each wave, it's so consistent, just comes in with this like consistency. And the bigger the wave, the bigger the crash. There's so many analogies to life, you know? Oh, sure. But, uh, there's wisdom all around us if we have the eyes to see it mm. but i still feel, yeah. feel like there's 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 ways in which you've you've accumulated some of that that you know, maybe there have been so many uh lessons along the way it's hard to remember where you've picked up all the bits so many so many insightful friends and community members and uh, entrepreneurs and mentors it just would be unfair to name one or two here yeah yeah well i mean there's there's one thing that i know about you it's like I've always known you to be committed to personal development and to see that as being kind of integral to being able to be uh, ex um, successful and vital in the work that you're doing. I mean, I think that's the most succinct way I can think I can extract from this right now, you know? Thanks, Jalen. You know, there's like that curiosity is like they, they say that like love is the gift of life. And I don't I don't disagree with that at all. But, and I feel like curiosity is like the how you get there, right? lean in with curiosity there's so many different ways to explore and see the world and i appreciate the time you've taken to to share what you have and the vulnerability as well because these are you know, difficult things to share thanks Jalen. i hope you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when new episodes are released if you've created a business that's a force for good and you'd like to share your story of challenge and success, go to questio.us slash podcast and click on the share my story button.